1995, a dream of a church was planted in Austin, Texas. A dream of a church that itself dreamed big, but stayed focused on the small. A dream of a church where every kind of person from every kind of background, regardless of ethnicity, culture, or skin color, would feel welcomed, supported, and challenged to grow. A dream of a group of people who would worship till the heavens felt it, who would love one another until their hearts knew it, and who would sacrifice for the world until the nation saw it. It would be the kind of a church committed to believing that because Jesus is real and has called the world to follow Him, our lives and days and decisions matter. It would be the kind of a church focused on living, breathing, and expressing the reality that in Jesus and His gospel, all things hold together and find their meaning. Today, that dream has become a reality. What kind of a church is that? What does that look like? Well, what do you call a work of art where every piece, no matter the size or color, fits together to make something bigger and better than it could ever be on its own? You call it the same thing we like to call ourselves, a mosaic. Yeah, good morning again. That was sort of worth coming for, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, we're pushing the pause button on our series in the life of David. We'll come back next week with two more in that series, then we'll pick up something else on January 17th that I'm really excited about and I've been working on for a while. Uh, but this morning as we get going, I'd like to actually read the title of the message. If you're here regularly, you know that I don't normally do that. Uh, but this morning I want to do that because you'll see I want to lay out for us today, again as we sort of take a, a break from our David series, I want to lay out some vision for us of who we are as a church. So if you're here and you're new this morning, you actually couldn't have picked a better Sunday to be here because you're going to see from the get-go some of the main things that we're focused on here as a local church. And so with that in mind, here we go, the title, Daring Greatly, the Multi-Generational, Multicultural, Disciple-Making Church. Scripture reading this morning is going to be a familiar one to you, just a few verses from Matthew chapter 28, that's also known as the Great Commission. Here we are, verses 16 through 20. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Yeah. You know, anyone in the world can be against stuff, right? Against something. Anyone can be bitter, uh, allow either pain or frustration or disillusionment or hurt to wear them down into ghosts of their former selves. And especially when it comes to faith, when it comes to serving God in a significant way, and especially, especially when it comes to church, it's far easier to be a skeptic and remain on the sidelines. It takes little to no faith, doesn't it, to point out where others have missed it. 
what's wrong with that person or that church or that group and why a person may be justified in going their own way and doing their own thing. It's, it's easy to be a cynic, a critic, a shot taker at churches, and I ought to know because that was what my life was for many years. But over the past year, there's been, there's been one thought, there's been one quote, one idea that sort of emerged as my quote of the year. And since you asked me, I'm going to share it with you this morning. And it's likely a familiar one to many of you, but it's, it's sort of circled its way back into my life and Carrie's life at key moments this year. I want to read it to you, and here it is. It is not the critic who counts. Not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man or the woman who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming. But who at the, per- the credit goes to the one who actually strives to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spins himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. Some Teddy Roosevelt called the man in the arena. Again, it's easy to be against something. It's far harder to love something, right? It's easy to critique and tear down. It's far harder to build and to love. As Pastor Jack Hayford said, some of you may know the name, it only cost God his breath to create, but it cost him his son to redeem. Say it again. It only cost God his breath to create, but it cost him his son to redeem. And for us as the people of God, to be people as redemption, it's going to cost us more than just our breath to see what we want to happen, happen. It's going to take more than just talking about or pointing out what's wrong with this group or that group. It's going to cost us everything in the pursuit of a worthy cause and a worthy dream that ought to, if it's the right kind of dream, outlast our lifetimes. And what is that worthy cause? Well, it's the bringing of heaven to earth, the demonstration of the kingdom of God through what Jesus, the Son of God, gave his life for, his church, his people. But what kind of church and what kind of people? There are many and amazing, wonderful parts of the body of Christ all over the world in all shapes and sizes. But what about us? Mosaic, what are we called to be? Well, this morning I want to lay out some values and some vision, both as a way of summarizing this past year and looking ahead to the next. So these points you're about to see, they're ripped straight from the headlines, or at least from the headlines of our website, which if you've been there over at least the past six months, tells you right on the front page we are something in particular. It says we are, number one, multi-generational, number two, multi-ethnic, and three, single purposed. Now that sounds nice, but what does it mean? Let me try to show you. Number one, multi-generational. Uh, you know, if there was, if there really was a generation gap in the 1960s, and some of you heard of that, there's really like a generation canyon today. Uh, my dad, my father's generation, maybe like some of you, grew up listening to the TV on the radio. 
if you know what I mean. They'd listen to the radio. There was no TV. I, my generation, I grew up being the remote control, you know, for the, for the five channels, right? Son, let's, what's on the other channel? Go change it. That was, that was me. But now my children, they grow up in a world not just with unlimited channels, but with unlimited access, on-demand access to every show ever made. And the difference in thinking and values and identity between my parents' generation and my children's cannot be overstated. And the tendency to polarize around generations, right? To camp out in our generational groups. That's just one way in which human community tends to fracture and polarize. And yet, and yet, God has called his church, he's called us to be countercultural by being multi-generational. Did you catch that? To be countercultural by being multi-generational. God's vision for his church from the beginning was to be multi-generational. Let's take a look at 2 Timothy 2.2. Paul commands, Paul again the apostle, commands his protege Timothy to build a multi-generational church. He says, Timothy, the things you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust, he said, to reliable men who are also qualified to teach others. And in case you're counting others, one, two, three, four generations, Paul, number one, tells Timothy, his son, number two, say, hey, son, look out for numbers three and four coming beyond you. Why? Because a New Testament church ought to be multi-generational. And in many ways, we are that, aren't we? Because if you look around today, there's at least, at least, three distinct generations in the room today. And because you guys are here, let's look at each of you briefly. Who are you? Well, number one, uh, there's some boomers in here. How many guys are boomers in here? Raise your hands. Yeah, a number of you. Yeah, born after uh, roughly over the age of 50. You grew up by and large in what was called the service economy. You invented stuff like fast food. Thank you very much. You know, <laughs> we're grateful for Truett, Kathy, and Chick-fil-A. Your life is better, right? Because the man was born. I'm the invented... Stuff like oil changes and Jiffy Lube, and many boomers can tend to see church like that, kind of like an oil change. You come in, you sit down, you pay for your service, and if you don't like it, then you go somewhere else. Boomers tend to prioritize content over relationship. Uh, They ask things like, what do you know, and what can you teach me? And it's funny, over the years of of being here, I've rarely rarely heard many boomers sort of critique me about not spending enough time with them. Only if the message content wasn't good enough, you know, wasn't deep enough. And they ask, after all, how can I follow you if you can't teach me something, right? It's a fair question. Boomers love these two words. They love Jesus said. Oh, it just feels good. Why? Because it communicates authority. Authority, right? And knowledge and insight. That's boomers, number one. Second, there's generation Xers, and I'm guilty as charged. Here, how many guys are Xers in the room? Number Xers, yeah, born 67 to 83, roughly. Uh, you and I, we're what's, from called, what's called the experience economy. Experience economy. We grew up going to places like Chuck E. Cheese for our birthday, right? Yeah, you go to the experience. We put Starbucks on the map, and you guys are well. Why? Because it's a relational, what, experience when you go. It's not just coffee. 
Uh, Gen Xers tend to prioritize, by contrast, relationship over content. It's reversed. They ask stuff like, how do you relate to me? How much are you like me? Do you know where I am coming from? See, they value personal relationship over professional skill. Again, generalizations here. But uh, again, I, I rarely hear any Gen Xers sort of make comments about message content, but only if I'm not spending enough time with them. After all, how can they follow someone who they don't spend enough time with? You see, it's also a fair question, but Gen X loves these two words. They love Jesus knows. Oh, man, it just feels good to say that sometimes. Jesus knows. Why? Because there's a shared experience relationally in those words. Third is Gen Y and millennials. How many of you guys are millennials in here today? Yeah, Gen Y, yeah. Millennials 83, yeah. <laughs> Excited about it too, yeah. All right. Growing up in what's called the transformation economy. You didn't go uh, to the petting zoo for your birthday. The petting zoo now comes to you, right? Uh, you don't go to the video game place. Now, video games in a van show up on your street and you go inside. It's, it transforms your environment. You have made Chipotle what it is today. It's personalized food experience. For that, we, we thank you, all E. coli news aside, right? Just saying. But my fault, man. I don't, I don't work there. Gen Y, by contrast, tends to prioritize feelings, feelings over relationship and content. Feelings. They ask stuff like, how will you move me? Right? How will this change my life? And how will this change the world? They can have a relationship with anyone, anywhere, anytime, any time zone. So why is this one different? And I never hear any Gen Y folk here complain about content or lack of time with me, only if something was boring or not, right? And millennials love these two words, Jesus is. Why? He is a transformational person, right? So again, in the room, we've got three distinct set of of, of relational or generational criteria in here, three strata, three sets of expectations at least, but what are we going to do? But thankfully, and hopefully you saw this coming, Jesus isn't a boomer. He's not a Gen Xer, not a millennial. He is, as he said, John 14, says, I am the way the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me, which means three things. Jesus himself tells us that he is. Number one, he is the way, right? He's the relationship, Gen X 6. He's the truth. He's the content, the boomer 6. He's the life. He is the transforming experience, Gen Y 6. He's what we all need. And it is amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. But it doesn't just mean that we all need him. What it shows us is that we need one another one another because we need someone with a little different Jesus filter on them don't we yeah so which means this the call for us therefore is not just to be here this multi-generational but intergenerational intergenerational see being multi I mean, any church can be multi-generational you get two babies and a grandma in the room right now you're multi-generational so just having same, the same generations in the room but still only connecting in your little silo and camp 
that's, that's not being intergenerational. That's sort of just like the repeat button on the iTunes playlist that you got, right? You mean you get the same thing over and over, same song, same thing over and over. But being intergenerational, going across generational lines, that's like the fun button. That's the shuffle button, right? That's the shuffle button. You're going to get more interesting stuff than if you just stayed on your one song alone. Now, you may get some stuff that's too loud, you know, or too slow or whatever, but you'll never find anything new or maybe even life-changing if you don't hit shuffle and get people in your life from a different generation. And by the way, the Bible is full of commands for us to do this, to shuffle it up. Paul writes in his epistles, he says, older women teach the younger women. Older men set an example for the younger men. And on the reverse end, the Proverbs say stuff like this, that, hey, whippersnappers, you know, you 22-year-olds with life figured out. Experts you are. Why don't you take a listen to some folks with some survival skills? You know, people don't live to 70, you know, just by accident. They've survived, right? Your life will be better for it if you do. Your, our lives are going to be better if we hit the shuffle button. And more specifically, your life will be better if you'll do this for someone else, older or younger, and someone who's done this in my life is a friend of mine, some of you know him, by the name of John Tribu. John. Now, when I got to the church in 2010 here, almost every boomer left. And so did their giving, which kind of hurt. Why? In large part because they didn't want to start over with the new guy who probably and realistically didn't have much to teach him, right? That's the grid. And to be realistic, I probably didn't at the time. But John, John didn't care about what I could do for him. Or if he did, he never said it. He came into the church. He came into the church with, uh, with an older and better Bible teacher at the time. But then the game changed on him and his wife, Lauren. And instead of having the veteran group leading the charge, they had the rookie and the rookies who made a ton of rookie mistakes. But every time I, I met with John, it was the same thing. Things are going to be great. I believe in you. You're doing good. We're going to get there. I trust you. You got some setbacks, but we're going to be fine. And I would think, man, John, are you looking at the same church I'm looking at, man? But listen, here was the key. He just saw you, saw us through Jesus's eyes. This could be great with a little time, care, investment. See, John knew his role had changed. He didn't need to be catered to. He needed to invest. And that's what he did. John hit the shuffle button and we're all reaping the rewards from it. Aren't you glad? Yeah, number two. Number two. We are multi, multi-ethnic. We're multi-ethnic here. And of course, you've noticed that if you walked in. But I want to unpack what that means. When, when I committed my life to Jesus at the age of 19, I was born again into this multicultural, multi-ethnic campus ministry. And soon after that, I moved into this house with all these other dudes from our college group who were nothing like me. And in particular, there was this one African-American guy who hated African-Americans. He did, and he hated white people too. And he especially hated college athletes. So I had a couple of strikes against me. I'll let you figure out which ones were against me. All right, I have those, those three. But this guy had to be one of the strangest guys I ever had to live with. And uh, he's also the most spiritually sensitive. And he had, in his room, he had this one little corner of the room where he had set up this table. And he, and he put this uh, black tablecloth on it with us some candles and some incense. And he'd go in there and he'd burn incense and candles and kind of pray at all sorts of weird hours of the night when he'd get off from being uh, a waiter uh, downtown. And so he liked to pray in there. But uh, one, one day I had some of my buddies over, some of these freshman athletes and folks 
football players and knuckleheads, you know, jocks in there. And so I was giving them a tour of the house and we come into my roommate's room and they just begin to just mock it. I mean, say stuff like, man, who's this weirdo in here? You know, where's the refill, Joe Boo? Sorry, to quote Major League, some of you know that movie. And you're sorry for that. What's this guy doing? You know, his shrine, one of the candles, smells funny. And then we went and we went out and went on. And my roommate came home and we saw him go into his room. We heard him stop, begin to sniff. He comes out and he looks at all of us and says, who's been in my room? It smells like mockery in there. <laughs> oh, you know, Mufasa, you know. What's up with that? Those big football players never messed with him again, I'll tell you that. Now, he was strange, but over the course of several years of relating to him and living together, he was really the first one to break into my all-white world and challenge a lot of my presuppositions, my assumptions about race and class and privilege and words like that. And my heart, it was really challenged at first, but I grew to love it. And I grew to love the pain that relating to him cost me and caused me. And relating to him and being a part of that little group there changed my life and formed, began to form this thesis within me. And it's this, that multi-ethnic, multi-racial churches have the power to heal our nation. There's actually, yeah, you ought to clap for that because there's actually some growing proof of that. The guy by the name of Michael Emerson, Dr. Emerson, is a sociology professor at Rice University, and he's done the largest longitudinal study of race and church that exists today, and this is what he's found. It's incredible, and here's his quote. He said, quote, involvement in multiracial congregations over time leads to fundamental differences. Friendship patterns change. We find that people in multiracial congregations have significantly more friendships across race than do other Americans. For example, for those attending racially homogenous, that means they're all the same congregations, 83%, not good, so that most or all of their friends were the same race as them. For those not attending any congregation, 70% said most or all of their friends were the same race as them. Now I want to pause for a second because that's tough. He's saying you're more likely to have racially diverse friendships if you're not a part of a homogenous church. He says homogenous faith groups are a deterrent to interracial friendships. But then he says something amazing. Look what he says. He says, but for those attending multiracial congregations, there is a dramatic difference. Only 36% of people attending racially mixed congregations said that most or all of their friends were the same race as them. And we found that those 36% were relatively recent arrivals to their racially mixed congregations. Indeed, we found that by far the most important factor in people having racially diverse relationships is whether they attend a racially mixed congregation, partly due to the greater relationships across race. Involvement in multiracial congregations leads to attitudinal change, change toward closing the racial gap in racial attitudes. He concludes this way, the implication for a racially divided but changing nation is clear. In contemporary times, multiracial congregations offer a promising path forward. Now, that ought to encourage you. That ought to encourage you. It ought to. But also, there's something discouraging in there. And that says only 13% of churches in the U.S. are multiracial. You think, well, man, if that's got the power to change the nation, why don't more Christians or more church leaders at least try it? And the answer is what you all know. 
it's because it's just really hard. I think I heard somebody say it. Because it's just really hard. It's just hard. Because a lot of times, you know, it's just not geared toward you. It's just not. Because if you stick around here, let me tell you what's going to happen to you. People come in and say, I love a diversity. It's so beautiful. Well, let me tell you what's going to happen to you. One day you're going to drive up in the parking lot here and you're going to notice a bumper sticker supporting the very political candidate you know is wrong for the country, whom you could not be paid enough money to vote for, and whom you're pretty sure if he took off the mask would be the Antichrist. You just know it would be him. And right there before you ever step foot inside the facility, you're confused. You think, is this a church? I thought there were Christians there, right? But being the mature person that you are, you shrug it off and you think, well, maybe it's just some lost person who wanted in there. It's just this non-Christian. I'll pray for them. They'll meet Jesus today, right? But then after, your sur- after the service, on your way out to your car, you see the person getting into the car with the bumper sticker, right? And you're pretty sure it was the deacon who prayed for you, right? Or the community group leader. Maybe the uh, nice usher or greeter. And you liked him on the way in, but now, now you're not just confused, you're kind of irritated, right? What do you do? What do you do? You can say to them, how could you call yourself a Christian and vote for that person, Right? That's probably not going to do, you know, much, but you, you could say nothing to them, right? You could smile at them nicely on the way out, then go home and throw massive shade on Facebook at Christians who refuse to look at the gospel through a biblical lens like me, right? <laughs> right. You could do neither of those. You could go back to a spiritually homogenous environment where everybody pats you on the back for your political convictions, which are all the same as theirs, by the way, and may or may not be biblical, Now, those three options are actually easy. They're easy. Take little to no thought or time or all, and actually, hear this, only serve to further divide our nation, my opinion. But when you see that bumper sticker, you read that post or that tweet, and you choose not to flame, not to ignore or to retreat, but to do something else, and that is to get involved uh, in an environment that's way less comfortable than what you grew up in, and you begin to get involved with a community group, and you begin to ask questions like, why are you so upset about that? Or why aren't you so much more upset about that? Why aren't you upset about that? And then you shut your big yapper, <laughs> and you begin to listen. Now you're getting somewhere. You say, well, how was that going to help? To which I would say, because those first three reasons don't and won't. And second, it's because that's the solution the apostle Paul commanded us to take in racially challenging situations. He writes in both 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans 8 to groups of racially mixed Christians in both those cities who one group was strong in an area, weak in an area. The other group, you know, the opposite uh, in terms of race was strong and weak the same areas. He said, here's what you do when it comes to those moments where you see you're right and the other person's wrong. Here's what you do. You ready? Here's his big solution. He says, accept one another as Christ has accepted you. Oh, and who, who are you? Ah, you are a wretched, filthy, sin-loving, God-dishonoring, rebellious, accept one another as Christ accepted you, which is how? in whole, right? The totality of who you are because you love him, right? See, the Bible's solution is always a relational one. Let me ask you, do you receive and embrace people who are different than you? Paul says, and Michael Emerson shows us, if we'll do this, we can begin to heal our nation.
red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight. Are they precious to you? Or do you only tolerate other colors and cultures? Oh, If you see those people are precious in your father's sight, they will be in yours as well. Multiracial church, it's just challenging. Sometimes we get it right. Sometimes we get it wrong. But I'm not going back. And I hope you're not either. Number three, we are here single purpose. Our purpose, though, is not to be multi-generational or multi-racial for the sake of those things. No, those things are non-negotiable for us. The things that we're going to look like if we actually do number three correctly, and that's this. Our only purpose can be the very purpose Jesus said the purpose of his church was, which is what we read at the beginning, Matthew 28, verse 19. Therefore, he said, go and make disciples of all nations, and surely I'm with you to the end of the age. Does Jesus want us to focus on having, for example, a really great choir for that Easter special? Right? No. Does he say, let's focus on having really, really spectacular sermons? Did he say, let's pray for revival, maybe focus on intercession as a purpose of ministry? We should focus on casting out demons and seeking spiritual gifts. No, he didn't. Now, we want to create a compelling atmosphere. Great music. Hope you love it. It was amazing. Hope the messages, sermons are tolerable in passing for you. We desire to see revival, to pray, seek spiritual gifts. They are for today. They are for today. But yet, nowhere does the risen Son of God tell us to focus on those things as the purpose of the church, even though at some level we ought to be doing all that. What did he actually tell us to do? Well, you heard Peter say it earlier. He said, make this, actually, go and make disciples. That means to take what you have and pour it into the life of another, person by person. And actually, he didn't just say, go make disciples. He said, make disciples of all nations. That means all people groups. That means we're going to have to get involved, aren't we, in our community, in our city, in our world, politics, arts, sports, university, education, medicine, the like, everything. Every place there's a people group. That's where we're supposed to go. And what does a disciple look like? He tells you. Someone who does what? Obeys him. It's pretty simple. Listen, if we want to change the world, we'll never do it if we don't obey him. Prioritize his word above our word and our life. Jesus reprioritizes your life for you. You're welcome. Right. Being a disciple means you remember it ain't your little life no more. Southern dialect intended, right? But Jesus can make the claim of priority because he has all authority. He says, it's all mine, therefore I get to tell you what to do, he says. But listen, as we do this, church, as you become this, look at what Jesus says. He says what? I, I love it, I will be with you in a unique way. And I believe, church, because we have made this our priority over the last many years, he has been with us. I mean, look at this year alone, 2015. This year alone, we've seen more people come to faith in Christ than we have any other year. We've seen more people water baptized here than we have any other year. Uh, we've, this church is the largest it's been in its 20-year history. We've given away more money to missions and charity and missionaries, organizations, than any other year. We've had more people go on mission trips around the world than any other year. I'd say, I'd say he's been with us.
I'd say he's been with us. But there's one more thing I've got to get to here before we're done because it's actually, it's actually the best part of the whole message, the whole passage. Because he doesn't just say he's with us. It says, what, is it, what does it say? He says, he's with us. Something even greater than our minds can grasp. He's with us to the very end of the age. Jesus is saying here, in other words, at the end of the world's story, no matter what has happened in history, Jesus is saying here, he says, because I'm risen, I'm going to make everything right. I'm going to make it all right. He says, I'm going to wipe away every tear, restore every broken life who believes in me. In other words, Jesus is, he's claiming to be the happy ending of the universe. J.R.R. Tolkien said this, quote, he says, it's the mark of a good tale that however wild its events, however fantastic or terrible the adventures, it can give when the turn comes, that's the phrase, a turn, a catch of the breath, a beating and lifting of the heart, near to or accompanied by tears. In the turn, we get a piercing glimpse of joy and a heart's desire for that, for that, that for a moment passes outside the frame, rends indeed the very web of the story and lets a gleam come through, joy beyond the walls of this world as poignant as grief. The gospels contain a story which embraces the essence of all fairy tales but this story has entered history and the primary real world the gospel therefore has not abrogated legends i love this but has hallowed them especially happy endings now he's saying there's an art form called the fairy tale the fairy tale and the pinnacle of the fairy tale is what you love it. it's the happy ending right i mean it's the turn the moment where the defeats turn to victory and the hero lives he says that's what every human heart longs for and that's what mankind of course has longed for for centuries till the 20th century and the massive rise in skepticism and the art critic began then and still today they turn up their nose at the happy ending, at fairy tales, they say, ah, oh, those are just for kids, right? I mean, look at Steven Spielberg. He didn't start winning Oscars until he started making darker stuff like Schindler's List, Saving Private Ryan, but stuff like E.T., Jurassic Park, right? Indiana Jones, happy endings are for kids, the art critic says. Real life doesn't work that way. But if that's true, if that's true. If real life doesn't work that way, then here's what that means. That means every time you watch a movie, every time you read a story, every time you hear a thrilling finish to a piece of music and your heart is rent and torn and you love that and you say, oh, that's what the world and the universe ought to be like. At that moment, you've got to stuff it down and remind yourself, happy endings are for suckers. They're for suckers. They're for kids. Life doesn't work that way. The universe isn't like that. But Jesus Christ says, oh, yes, it is. He's saying, I stand at the end of the age. I straddle time and space. He says, I'm at the end of history. It means every cross gets swallowed up by his resurrection. All evil will be overcome by good because good has overcome evil. See, Jesus is every happy ending you love, church. He's, man, he's Superman, right? I mean, he comes up out of the grave, stops time and space to fly back, drag his love out of her grave, revives her with his breath, right? Puts the world to rights. He's the brave knight who charges the gates of hell, right? Conquers the dragon, wins the beauty, brings her back to life with his touch. He's the nobody from the desert who flies in to defeat the empire. I mean, he's the hero. He's the hero who flies in and emerges victoriously. And whenever you experience that moment in art, literature, movie, the moment of the turn, 
and you weep and your heart is filled with joy, you're experiencing a tiny bit of the resurrection, the resurrection which can heal your heart. See, if your faith and trust are in him to save you, he's at the end of your story. No matter how broken your life is today, his resurrection means your tragedy doesn't define you, your marriage doesn't define you, your brokenness, your injury, your hurt, your disease, none of that defines you. They're not at the end of the age. Jesus is. Jesus is. Oh, yeah. Is everything sad going to come untrue? Sam asked Gandalf. And the answer Jesus gives is yes. Yeah. And because of that, it's not the critic who counts. The credit belongs to the church, the church who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred by blood and dust and sweat, the church who errs, comes short again and again, but who actually strives to do the deeds who at best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement. And if we fail, at least we fail by daring greatly. Church, I hope we can dare greatly in this coming year in 2016 in Jesus' name. Can we do that together? Let me pray for you as we close. Lord, we thank you for these truths, for this picture. Lord, as you, as you stand across, you straddle the end of the age. Lord, and because of that, evil is swallowed up by good. No matter what we feel now, no matter what we see in the news, experience in our own lives and generation, still somehow you're at the end of the age. History is going towards you. Lord, give us the grace to be these things, to love these things, to live them out with courage and conviction and integrity, and humility, repentance. All those things that really make a church a church. Not the music, not the sermons, not the facility. Loving hearts who love a Savior. In Jesus' name.